And so we see here in chapter 47, then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, my father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all they possess have come from the land of Canaan and indeed they are in the land of Goshen. So this is a, a real signifier of how important Joseph was and how to a degree emperors who are so isolated the way the emperors were at those times, had to sort of vicariously live through other people, you know? So if you would, he's been following the story of Joseph along. And, uh, and of course, you know, quite a story it was, you know? Facts are, are stranger than fiction, and Joseph's story is really quite an elaborate story. And, and so... Pharaoh knows Joseph's story, and, and he knows that he's keeping his eye out for these people coming down from Cana, and, and, and everybody that came from Cana went through Joseph, and Joseph would check them out to see if they were his relatives, and finally, it did happen. It was his brothers, and he wanted to test them to see if they still had envy uh, towards the kids of Rachel, Benjamin, and Joseph, or how they felt about what they did to Joseph. Are they fine? You know, they're like, yeah, we don't, oh, we forgot about the guy. We, we didn't even really do anything. You know, that wasn't the case. They were still tormented, tra traumatized by what they did to Joseph. And so those things were, were important things for Joseph to learn in, in that couple of years, really, uh, of, of messing with them. Uh, quite humorous how that all played out. And, and so Pharaoh probably said, hey, I got to meet the family, you know. I've heard the story. This is pretty exciting. And even though I, you know, it's not beneath me, I'm vicariously living through this story. I've got to meet these characters uh, that you've told me about. I've got to meet this dad of yours. And, uh, and so when, when they're all coming down, Joseph, let me know. And, and wow. So Joseph's like, yeah, I've got to do what Pharaoh said. And hey, Pharaoh, I, they're here now uh, if you want to meet them. And sure enough, Pharaoh does want to meet them. So this is just huge. And so Joseph, he took five men from among his brethren and presented them to Pharaoh. Now, now Joseph had just told him this is the way he's going to do it. However, it's very interesting to see how the commentators split on Joseph's pick of his five brothers. Now, we don't know if even all five of the brothers. There might be mixed in there some nephews and, and others. We don't know. Now, some say that he picked the best looking, the most presentable, you know, to give the best impression to Pharaoh that, wow, yeah, we're a very good-looking, prosperous-looking group of guys. But a big percentage of the commentaries think he did the opposite, he picked the ugliest, dumb-looking, worst-dressed five. So Pharaoh would say, can you go to Goshen? I never want to see you guys again. <laughs> because that's really what Joseph was trying to arrange here. Joseph is like, man, we are not supposed, according to God's plan for us, we're not to intermingle with the other nations. That's all they do here in Egypt. And if you're literally going to be living in Egypt, how are you not going to get mingled in 
And don't forget, all the people of that area of the world are all having to leave their locations and move to Egypt. So you've got a real potpourri of different types of people living uh, in the boundaries of Egypt. And so Joseph is trying to figure out a way to keep them completely separated. So really, it sort of leans towards Joseph picked, you know, the guy with the big buck tooth sticking out and, you know, the other dopey looking guy with one ear <laughs> sticking way out and the other ear, you know, uh, and, and looking sort of strange. Uh, so Pharaoh's like, oh, okay, uh, your family, I met them, Joseph. I guess you're the only good looking one out of the bunch. Um, so I, I don't know what, what happened here, but there was definitely a plan, but we don't know who it was, and we don't know the plan of who these five people were. But they did, were presented to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? Now, guys, remember right back. Go back to the last four verses there of chapter 46. And Joseph hath prepared him for this exact thing. He says, guys, you're going to meet Pharaoh and, and understand that my plan is to get you down to Goshen. And, and so what I need you to do is to make it clear that your occupation is being a shepherd, and, and you feed livestock, you also do that, um, and, and that's pretty much it. You're, you're, you're shepherds mainly, but you also do a little herdsman stuff with the cattle. And uh, outside of that, um, that's all there is to know about you and your whole family. And he's going to suggest you go away from the populated areas and go out into the farming community and by the way, that's the best place to live. That's the best of the land of Egypt. The Egyptians don't want to live there. They don't want to live out where there's dirt and mud and hard work and labor and sweat. They want to live in the metropolitan area, you know, dressing in all their finest garb and going to the coffee shop and tea shops and, and uh, palling around with all the hierarchy. But in reality... The healthiest, most prosperous place to live is where the Egyptians don't want to live. And that's where all the farmland is and all the cattle is. That's, that's our life anyway. That's who we are. So we want to get out there to Goshen. And, and in the shepherd's eyes, they won't even come to see you because they think shepherds are, is the last thing they want to see. They don't even want to see you guys. They think so lowly of you. <coughs> Excuse me. And so... They said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. In verse 4, and they said to Pharaoh, we have come to dwell in the land because your servants have to, uh, no pasture for the flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. So it sounds like they had to memorize a speech. Um, it's identical to what Joseph had told them at the end of chapter 46. Then in verse 5, Pharaoh spoke to Joseph. Why? Well, according to the Egyptian law, nobody could directly talk to Pharaoh. So the fact that these brothers are talking to Pharaoh is telling you that Pharaoh sort of has come to them on the outskirts and the typical hierarchy protocol isn't happening. That they're actually seeing Pharaoh and talking to them, even though they weren't worthy to do that. But 
Pharaoh, even when he was in with the greatest of the Egyptians, Pharaoh, according to the Egyptian law, would not talk directly to anybody. That, that he was above all of that. So he's not talking to them, but he is talking to Joseph, mainly because Joseph's probably the translator as well, right? So maybe Joseph's translating everything his brothers are saying, and now he talks to Joseph uh, to tell his brothers uh, in Egyptian what it is that he is now saying. But there is some definite important nuances there when it says that he talked to Joseph. And, um, and he says, your fathers and your brothers have come to you. And the land of Egypt is before you. So they've come to see you, Joseph. I, I can see that this reuniting of your family with you is a good thing. They've come here for you. And they're here to be with you. And, and so give them, your father and your brothers, to dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, uh, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. So because it's the best area, that's probably where the royal royalty had their cattle and, and whatever they had, they owned, was cared for by... Um, others and and they would just get the money from it or get the eggs or the chickens or whatever they was that they needed uh, that would be brought to them in the palace area um, and so it could be a couple of things happening here you know one he's saying if there's a competent one among you which I don't know I mean if you translate it as you got the five dopiest looking guys to present he, um, or he, he's just trying not to insult anybody by saying, hey, you know, these guys are in need. I'll throw them a bone. They can help be my herdsman, and they'll get the monthly paycheck uh, from the uh, Pharaoh that'll help them out on the finance side of things. Or it could be also he's saying, man, if these guys are a tenth of what you are, Joseph, I want them to work for me. Because remember, when Potiphar, Joseph worked for Potiphar, Potiphar got wealthy. He, and then uh, now he's taking care of Egypt, and he's like, man, I, if, if, you're, uh, if your family's anything remotely like you, Joseph, I want your whole family working for me. It could have been that. And uh, whether they took him up on it, we don't know. Some say, yeah, they did. They, they became royal herdsmen that gave them protections, that gave them a steady income. Uh, there's a lot of things that could have come from that, but we don't know if they took that job up, that job offer from him or not. And in verse 7, um, so Joseph brought in his father, Jacob and set him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now, this is really radical. So, Pharaoh, you know, wants to get a, a look at the old guy. I don't think there was a lot of guys 130 years old alive. Anybody, any of you guys want to meet a 130 year old person? I mean, yeah, it's, I, I'd go for it. Um, now, Joseph, or Jacob, thinks he's near death. He's going to live another 17 years. So I, I think he's feeble at this time. But he's looking at Pharaoh, and, and very possibly he touches Pharaoh. I mean, that's really how the blessing goes in some way, right? 
I don't know if he's just sitting there, but maybe he puts his hand on Pharaoh. Maybe Pharaoh was a young boy. Um, we, we don't know the, the, the specifics about this time. But he blesses him. Now, let me tell you, this would not happen typically. Because in this culture, the understanding is, is that the greater blesses the lesser. The lesser never blesses the greater. And in essence, by allowing Jacob to bless him, he is saying, I am under you. I am lesser than you. In Hebrews 7.7, taking an Old Testament principle, if you would, it says in Hebrews 7.7, now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better or the greater. And so uh, this would be a complete insult normally, typically, but yet it happened. And so I, I wonder if Joseph is like, Oh, no, dad, 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 I don't know which, uh, you know, but evidently it, it all worked out just fine. And so Pharaoh said to Jacob, how, how old are you? After he blesses him, I guess. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. So you think I'm old? You should have met my dad and my grandpa and my great-grandpa, Terah. He lived to be a 205. Abraham lived to be 175. My dad, Isaac, lived to be 180. So 130 in my family is not that great. Matter of fact, I, it's substantially less than what my forefathers have lived. But they have not had the hard life I had. Poor me. Boo-hoo. I've had it worse than any of them. You wouldn't even, you couldn't even, if I told you the story, man, you would know how hard my life has been. Oh. You know, we, we see Abraham at the end. There was just some things there that just weren't really kosher. Isaac, Isaac really was very lukewarm most of his life. We were, it's all one chapter in the book of Genesis. And, and, you know, he was blind and stubborn and wasn't going to bless Jacob no matter what, even though God had ordained that he blessed Jacob instead of Esau. But he wasn't going to give in to that. He was going to bless Esau. And he was, you know, I want some red meat. You know, I want you to be, eat. And after I eat a bunch of meat, then I'll bless you, Esau. It was a very fleshly thing. And of course, he said, I'm going to die any day. He ended up living an extra 37 years, was it? <laughs> after he thought he was dying. So, you know, Jacob has is, is been in this death mode, it seems like, for a few years. Now we're going to learn at the end of this chapter, he lives another 17 years. So he's not that far away from dying. Um, and, and, his, and the years that he would ultimately live weren't that far off from his forefathers. But he thought, I'm dying now, 130, that's a lot less than them, because he thought he was dying. But again here, it just doesn't give glory to God. I mean, imagine if you're standing next to your child, and somebody says, well, how was it growing up in your parents' house? 
and my kids don't know I'm standing there, and they go, oh, it was torture. Oh, it was long and hard and grueling, and man, it was like slavery. It was just the worst. And then they turn around and look at you, and you're going, whoa. This is exactly what Jacob's doing to God. He's telling this pagan guy, yeah, we have the true God, but man, my life's been horrible. You wouldn't know I'm blessed. Now, remember in the last chapter, when, or a couple chapters back, when Benjamin was going to be taken to Egypt, and he thought, oh, no, you know, Benjamin's going to die there, and then I'm, you know, I, I might as well uh, kill myself. And, and he's saying, everything's against me. Remember that? When in reality, God had been at work for over a decade to bless Jacob in ways that he couldn't even imagine. But even after he heard Joseph was still alive, he still can't get out of this funk. He can't get out of this, this really lack of faith way of looking at life, right? I, I, I'll tell you what, has it happened to you yet as a Christian I don't feel like if I'm not getting my fair share right now that I'm getting cheated. Because John 14 says, a mansion awaits for me that Jesus is going to give me. He's a pretty good architect. Look at planet Earth. And he's building a mansion for me. I got a feeling it's better than anything, you know, uh, that's going on on this earth. And... Um, and so, yeah, life isn't fair here. Sin, Satan, hardship. You know, I think if you're living in squalor in Haiti, you're thinking, man, those guys in America, I, I just don't have it fair. I'd have to agree with them. I think the richest person in Haiti would probably still be close to one of the poorest people in America, right? And I think one of the poorest people in America would be wealthy compared to Haiti standards. So, you know, I think from our American point of view, a lot of times we get really skewed. Well, how could God allow that? I wanted that 10-bedroom house of 14,000 square feet, and, and I couldn't afford it. <laughs> I had to buy an 8,000-square-foot home with only two swimming pools. How, how can an evil God like that exist? I'm an atheist. You know, it's ridiculous how we get sometimes. It, it really is. And, and I, I really wish somebody would just kick Jacob right in the butt at this point and say, quit dishonoring your God. He has spoken to you. How many of you, how many of you guys have got to wrestle with God all night? I'd sure like to wrestle with the Lord all night. How many of you guys have, have heard God's voice speak to you? Had a dream like like. Jacob did. He actually got to see Jesus in that, in that ladder going up to heaven, coming and down, the angels going up and down. We go to John. Jesus said, that was me. I'm that ladder. You were looking at the Messiah. I was a ladder, but you were looking at me. Yeah, Jacob. Yeah, Let, let's, let's say it. He did have a hard life, but 90% of it was his own bad attitude. 90% of, 90 of it is because he kept making 
foolish choices. He was a self-willed man, fighting, kicking, biting to get his own, his own, whatever that meant, whether it was his blessing or his inheritance or his amount of money or what Laban owes me or what my brother owes me or what my dad owes me, everybody owes me. And yeah, his life was harsh. I, I think of that Proverbs 13, 15 in the old King James. I like the way it says, it says it that the way of the transgressor is hard. Yeah, he was a transgressor and that's why it was hard. And, I, and I'll tell you what, I, I've seen some beautiful, beautiful Christian people who, you know, until they were 40 years old, they were on drugs or an alcoholic. And, and they are the most incredibly beautiful, fruitful people now. But man, you know, they get to 45, their teeth are all falling out. And time they get to 47, they look like they're 87. And yeah, the way of those first 40 years of their life was hard. It was hard. I don't judge them, I don't condemn them. I, I just want to hug them. But it was hard. Jacob's life was hard. But it, the reason he's feeling it was so hard, it wasn't from God not being faithful or blessing him enough. It really does come back to his stinking thinking. It comes back to his greed. It comes back to his self-will. And it doesn't reflect upon God and his goodness, even though that's what Jacob is inferring. Also, I think we know well Galatians 6, 7, right? God won't be mocked. Whatever you... So that will you reap. And, and Jacob sowed a lot of discord, a lot of deceit, a lot of lying, a lot of deception. What did he get from his wives? The same. What did he get from his kids? The same. He, he sowed to the wind and then he reaped the whirlwind. His self-will, his sons caught that self-will and it came back as a tornado hitting him when they said, Joseph is dead and here's his bloody clothes. He sowed to the wind, deceiving his dad, deceiving his brother, deceiving Laban. But one deception from all his combined boys was a hurricane that blew him over and, and, and devastated his life, making it a very hard, evil life against him indeed. You know, I, I told my kids growing up, it's like, life is hard. I, you know, they're like, this isn't fair. This is so hard. I'm like, yeah, yes. Good, you've learned. Life is not fair. Quit expecting it to be that way. And life is hard. You're correct. That's it. You're very wise now. Well, I don't like it. I don't either. That's why we get our eyes on Jesus. We're going to heaven. This is in heaven. Pretty nice place. Sometimes it feels like it could be heaven but it's not. And, and so don't, life is already unfair. Life is already hard. Don't make it harder with sinning. Don't make it harder with foolishness. Bad company corrupts good morals. Don't get around a group of people that'll take you in the wrong direction. Well, I do like the fact that he says twice there, he calls his life a pilgrimage. Did you catch that at the beginning of verse nine? The days of the years of my pilgrimage. And then he ends in that way uh, as well by saying, 
They're not attaining to the, the years of my father's pilgrimage. That's right. That's right. Our life's a pilgrimage. And if we remember that, what's a pilgrimage? We're out like they were in tents, living as, they're not owning anything. They're not trying to put down roots. They're not trying to hang on to it. You know, I bought this land. I, I sometimes see those Westerns where the guy will go and cut himself off 40 acres and then somebody else will come. He finds out, uh, you know, at the end of the winter, there's a whole group of people that have planted their flag on part of his acreage and tore down his, his fields and, or tore down his woods and built hats or built huts and, and cabins. And, and he's over there going, no, that's mine. And look at this paper. He's like, oh, I can't read, um, you know, and... and and then he's like, ah, what do I do? I, you know, once you get it, you got to hang on to it. You know what I mean? There's just stress and that we don't. We're not, we're just, we're here. You know, the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and all that's in it. And in, in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, you are possessors of all things. You possess us the apostles. You possess our words, the word of God. You possess life. You possess death. You possess everything. We possess the mountains. Isn't that awesome? I don't have to have a, a, a cabin up in Big Bear. I can just go drive out there and start hiking up any hill and enjoy it. I can just go down and lay at any beach. I own it all. It's all private beaches. It's owned by me and, and all my family <laughs> with Jesus. The earth's the Lord's, and, and we, as children, are possessors of all things. So because our heart is in the things of heaven, we can be pilgrims. We have a light touch. Jesus says, if somebody tells you, take my armor and carry it a mile, say, no, I'll, I'll, take, I'll carry it too. They demand this from you, then give them that also. I want your staff. Hey, take all my clothes also. Here. Don't resist them. You don't have to. We're not trying to hang on to something. The Lord's given you. You don't have to worry about tomorrow what you're going to eat or wear or drink. God's going to take care of it. Trust him. And so he's saying, I've been a pilgrim here. I don't possess anything. They did own a little bit of tiny land for a burial plot. That's it. So when I left Cana, it's not like I left the farm behind or I left a bunch of lands behind that are mine. I don't, I don't possess them. And now that I'm gone, somebody else can possess them. It's okay, I'm a pilgrim. And that's the way my fathers lived. We were all just pilgrims. That's the heart God wants us to have. In Hebrews 11, verse 13 to 16, these all died in faith, all the men of God throughout the history of planet Earth, starting with Abraham on forward, or Adam, excuse me, starting with Adam on forward. All the men who are men of God, who please God by their faith, they all died in faith, not, ha not having received the promises. Do you hear this? Hebrews eleven thirteen. they didn't receive the promises. Did Abraham see his kids as the stars of the sky? No. Abraham saw Isaac. That was it. Okay? He saw one kid. So they didn't receive the promises while they were still on earth. But having seen them afar off, were assured of them, 
embraced them, confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Do you hear this? They confessed with them, they're pilgrims, they're strangers on this earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had been called to mind that country which they had come out of, and they would have an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. God is not ashamed to be called their God. People who are embracing the promises of God that we've not yet received in this life, but we're going to receive them in the life to come. We're going to see also where Jacob is clear, hey, I'm, I'm going to die and I'm going to be gathered together with my people. Isn't that the truth? When we die, are we going to be out in the middle of dark space, wandering spirits, oh, you know, like Ebenezer Scrooge, ah, you know? Are we going to awaken and hug Jesus and hug my grandma and my grandpa and my dad and my son and Is that true? It is. So embrace it as though it were right now. It's a fact. God's well pleased to be called your God. People that are willing to walk by that kind of faith. I love that Job, uh, I believe it's chapter 19, where he says, um, my flesh, my flesh is going to get eaten by worms, he says. I believe it's Job 19.26, isn't it? My flesh is going to get eaten by worms. My body, he says, my body is going to get eaten by worms. But my flesh shall see God. Isn't that interesting? Job knew that even though my body's going to get ate, yet I'm going to be in a flesh seeing God. My eyes are going to be there. I'll be seeing him. I'll be touching him. And he rejoices. That's the way the men of God were pilgrims. Job had that heart of pilgrimage. Naked I came in this world, naked I go out. Blessed be the name of the Lord. (laughs) Though he slay me, still I'll trust in him. Is it right that God only is our God when we're being blessed? And when we stop getting blessed, we deny him? Or should we not bless him when we've lost everything? And we got boils all over your body and you're in pain and the only comfort you have is a piece of pottery to scratch yourself. All the pus and the the sores. That's the only relief I have on planet earth. I still will praise God. Psalms 84, David talks about this in verse five. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on what? Pilgrimage. Blessed is that man. Well, Jacob, I think, had stinking thinking. And I don't think it was very glorifying to God. And and if anything, again, it's a contrast between Joseph, who really did have a life that was evil and harsh. He really did. And yet we never hear Joseph talking negative like that, do we? And so anyway, in verse 11, Joseph 
situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt in the best of the land and in the land of Ramesses as Pharaoh had commanded. Now remember, Moses is the writer of this. And at his time when Moses was writing, Goshen had not been called Goshen for probably hundreds of years. It had been Eventually, Ramesses wasn't even thought of at this point, <laughs> but there'd be Ramesses first, and then at the time of Moses was Ramesses the second. And so we actually learn in Exodus 11, uh, or Exodus chapter 1, verse 11, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities in Pithom and Ramesses. So they would have no knowledge of Goshen. So he's specific going, yeah, they lived in the land of Goshen, and we know exactly where that is. It's east of the Nile, a very fertile land to this day, to this very day. It is the most fertile, best land in Egypt. And it would eventually be under, at, Roman, at Moses' time, uh, not Ramesses, but Ramesses II, uh, it would be his land. And so Joseph provided for his father, his brothers, and all his household, father's household with bread according to the number of their families. Verse 13, now there was no bread in all the land, and for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. I think every year was probably worse than the year before, right? Year one, year two, year three, probably year six was great, really brutal. Year seven was even worse yet, and then relief came. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan and the grain which they brought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And so when the money failed in the land of Egypt, there's no more money. It's all gone. It's in, packed away in some uh, giant storehouse of Pharaoh and all the land of Canaan. And all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us bread for why uh, should we die in your presence? And the money has failed. There's no more money left. I, I, I can't give you a piece of copper anymore. And, and Joseph said, well, give your livestock and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. So uh, let's have an understanding. You keep the livestock and feed it and take care of it, but it's owned now by Pharaoh. And they might as well because they don't have food to feed themselves. They definitely don't have food to feed the livestock. So they're going to die anyway. So, okay, yeah, okay, that sounds like a deal. I get to keep it, get to use it, but it's really Pharaoh's. In verse 17, so <clears throat> they did that for a year. They brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for their horses, the flocks, the cattle, the herds, and the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. So he gives a whole list of things. Interesting, we see here in verse 17, the first time in the Bible, the word horse. So as we know, horses are going to become very um, instrumental in battle and so forth later on. But right now, this is interesting, that there were horses. I don't think there were a lot of them. I think they were worth a lot of money. And, but he's saying uh, the best, the most exotic animals, like horses at this time, all the way down to donkeys and even sheep, uh, all the livestock was, was Pharaoh's. 
When that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said, well, we will not hide from my Lord that our monies are gone. Lord owns our herds and our livestock. Therefore, there's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. So I have my physical body and I have my plot of land that I own. So why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants of the Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, and the land may be not be desolate. And Joseph brought all the land of Egypt, and Pharaoh, for every man of Egyptian, sold his field, because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. So interesting that even... At the time of the Romans, we're talking all the way up to the time of Christ, they mentioned that nobody in Egypt owned land except for Pharaoh, that nothing was owned except by Pharaoh and his elite uh, few people. Very few people owned anything. And that would be consistent with what we learn here, that eventually nobody in all the land of Egypt would ever own anything again after this time for many thousands of years after that. So, um, so the people, interesting enough, verse 21, uh, as far as the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. So it appears for them to understand that the land is not yours, but Pharaoh's, you can't live there anymore. So before they had their animals and so forth, they took care of the animals and they gave the portion to Pharaoh. But now with the land, he's not allowing them to live there or he's shuffling the deck. <laughs> They're moving into somebody else's house at the other end of the country so they know that's not their house. And so when this seven years of famine is over, people aren't saying, oh yeah, I've lived here for 700 years. My family's owned this plot of land. That's not gonna be happening anymore that seems to be what is happening. But only the priest, in verse 22, uh, they had their allotted amount of money and they were able to hang on to that, uh, their land. That was it, the priest. And in verse 23, Joseph said to the people, indeed, I have bought you and your land to this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is the seed for you and you shall sow the land. And so it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one fifth, that's 20% to Pharaoh, and fourth, shall be your own as seed for the field and for your food, for those of your household and as food for your little ones. So they get to keep 80%. Let me tell you, you can go back as far as you want in history. A 20% flax tax is very good. Almost anywhere on the planet for most of the time. 20% flat tax is pretty good, especially when you compare that to later Egypt or even Babylon where people got to keep a very small percentage uh, of anything they had. So they're going, man, you, you have us over the barrel. You, you could literally have said anything. Now, I might, again, compare that to what God has said. He's required of us a tithe of 10%. And yet people are like, oh, can't we make it 8%? What about 7.5%? It, it's so funny how, how we look at these things, isn't it? But man, anybody here want 20% flat tax in California? I'm all for that, man. Uh, used to not be the case. It used to, that would have been a, a, a race hike, but not anymore. That, that would be really good for most people. 
Verse 25, so they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in your sight, my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priests only for one uh, and for which did not become Pharaoh. So all the way up to the time of Moses, Okay, over 400 years later, there's still the 20% thing is going on because Joseph set it up, a Jew who oversaw all of Pharaoh's, Egypt, the Egyptian stuff. So even though that, one, that 20% was set, when we get to Exodus chapter 1 in just a few weeks, we're going to re- realize that they don't remember Joseph and all the great things he did at all. But in verse 27, so Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. So the, the handful of people, probably closer to 100. I know last week they said 66 and, and then counted this and that, and there's 70. And then, of course, in the Septuagint version, it said 75. And, and in Acts, Stephen quotes the 75. But of course, in, in the Septuagint, in chapter 46, verse 20, when it says, and this is the children of Joseph, it actually mentions his two sons and their five sons. In the Septuagint, verse 20 of chapter 46 is much larger. It actually lists the five sons, grandsons of Joseph. So you add those five grandsons of Joseph in, like the Septuagint does, then on down when you're looking at verse 25 and it says there's 70, that's why you get the 75. But in reality, there were other people that were straggling along. So they were probably about 100 people. So if you look at the time you're looking at Isaac alone, and you do the math and the amount of time that went on, and there's 70 people at this point, um, it's about a 6% increase, which isn't too bad. So 70 people... uh, you know, and you add up 400 years going at even 5%. Let's say that you started with 100 people and 400 years you have 5%. You're, you're looking at millions of people now, guys. So they really were blessed in the land. That kind of growth is great. Today, you guys know what the population at earth growth is. It's very, very, very small. Negative in some countries even. Um, and so they, they were really blessed and multiplied. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So that's interesting because we learned earlier when Joseph met Jacob again, he had been in the land, how long? 17 years. He had been separated from his dad for 17 years when he was sold as a slave. And now God gives back to Jacob. Evil and hard has been his days. But God gives him that 17 years back to, his, to Joseph, to him. Even though Jacob said, man, I'm ready to die. I need a second now. In reality, he probably was about ready to die any second. <laughs> but God blessed him with 17 years more to live, to, to reward him in, in a sense to have that time for Joseph, to have that time with his dad that he had lost, and, and vice versa. But anyway, so the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. 130 earlier, 17, 147, it all adds up. 
And so when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand uh, under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt. Now this whole thing about putting your hand under the thigh and swearing, we don't see it too much. The last time we saw it is back in chapter 24 where Abraham said to his servant, put your hand over my thigh and promise me to go back to the land of the Ur of the Chaldees and find a wife for my son Isaac and you'll swear to me that you won't let him marry a Canaanite woman. And, and so he ended up putting his hand under Abraham's thigh and uh, he, he swore to him he would find a bride from the Ur of the Chaldees for Isaac. And um, so now we see it again. So it's been a long, long time since we've seen the old hand under the thigh trick. But um, he's, uh, he's doing it. And, uh, and so, hey, Joseph, you may not be too familiar with this, but you might have remembered the story about Abraham. And, and uh, but anyway, here, we're going to resurrect this thing. Put your hand under my thigh. Um, and be kindly... Um, Deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in, uh, in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And then he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. <laughs> so Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. And interesting here again is one of those things where uh, the Greek Septuagint, which is the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, it, it says there that he leaned on his staff instead of he put his head on the head of the bed. And really, at this time, they were sleeping on mats. So I don't really know if there even was a head of a bed. But in reality, it could be both. However, when Paul translates this verse in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 21, he uses the Septuagint translation, which does say he leaned on the top of his staff rather than he leaned on the head of his bed. I like, I like what Dr. Morris said in his commentary. He was so old and feeble, he probably did both. <laughs> he put his head on the top of the bed and he leaned on his staff both. But He's, he's going to die here any day, but yet he has enough strength to give us chapter 49 or for chapter 48 and chapter 49. He did a lot of talking, a lot of praying and a lot of blessing and a lot of prophesying. So he really did muster some strength up. Uh, so when we read this little thing, he, he mustered some strength and bowed himself. And then we get him talking uh, and we're going to see him do a lot of talking in chapter 48 and 49.